Well, good morning. It is a joy to see you guys this morning. We are going to be continuing in on our series in Song of Solomon. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Song of Solomon chapter 5. As we continue this morning in Song of Solomon, uh, really for the last seven weeks, we've been watching this couple's relationship. They've moved from the beginning stages of attraction into dating, uh, eventually into engagement. And a couple weeks ago, we saw them as they stepped into their wedding night and their wedding ceremony. And then last week, we saw them emerge out of that wedding and out of that romance into reality as conflict broke out. And really, as we've been kind of walking through and watching this couple progress in their relationship, continue to deepen and mature and grow, really the melody of their song, of their relationship has been a building beautiful song until last week when really their song, in a sense, hit the rocks and crashed and came to a screeching, ugly halt. (laughs) Conflict erupted and it erupted in simply one verse after an incredible celebration of their wedding in chapter 5, verse 1. If you guys remember chapter 5, verse 1, Solomon emerges out of the bridal chamber into the wedding reception, lights a cigar of balsam and myrrh, and is in a good place. <laughs> but then in chapter 5, verse 2, we're going to see conflict will break out immediately. Routine and reality has struck. And so what we're going to do this morning as we continue to watch this couple, we're going to see them move from a song of conflict like we saw last week to a song of resolution we're going to see this week. We're going to see this couple's conflict yet again, but I'm going to show you exactly how they resolve it and how their relationship ends up in a place that was even better than before the conflict. Specifically, there's going to be about four different communication patterns that I want to show you that are pitfalls. Pitfalls to avoid as you're communicating in conflict. And there's going to be four behaviors that I want you to embrace as you communicate in conflict. Four pitfalls to avoid, four behaviors to embrace. It's going to be incredibly and exceedingly practical. And so with that in mind, and the fact that winter has hit this week here in College Station, and it has gotten cold, I thought it would be appropriate to reintroduce to you some people that you knew very well this time last year. Maybe the most popular movie this time last year for kids or college students, it seemed to be uh, both, was Frozen. And so I want to reintroduce you to Elsa and Anna. And as I do that and show you a clip from their most famous song, Let It Go, here's what I, here's what I, I think you're with me, apparently. Here's what I want you to do. I don't want to ruin Frozen for you. I promise you our home will see another 50 times, all right? But here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to the lyrics of Let It Go, but with this question in mind. What is Disney teaching an entire generation of college students, you guys, kids, our kids' ages, as they grow up on the playground, as to how to handle conflict? I'm going to submit to you that Let It Go is one of the most dysfunctional songs on conflict resolution, all right? Here you go. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. A kingdom of isolation, and it looks like I'm the queen. The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in, heaven knows I tried. Be the good girl you always have to be Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know Well now they know Let it go, let it go Can't hold you back anymore Let it go, let it go
know some of you guys would like for the clip to just keep on going all morning. Uh, our first night of freezing weather, we busted the show out with our kids, lit the fire, had a great time. Uh, we love the movie. I don't want to ruin it for you, but as you listen to the lyrics, is there not a more dysfunctional song about conflict resolution? Conceal, don't feel, really? Is that what we're pushing? Uh, she uh, runs off to a kingdom of her own isolation. She is a conflict avoider and she just runs out to the hills where she literally, not just figuratively, but literally freezes everyone else out. At one point she says, uh, turn away, slam the door, let the storm rage on, the cold never bothered me. Later on in the song she'll say, my soul is spiraling into frozen fractals all around. I think the movie is absolutely adorable. I promise you we will watch it another 50 times in our home. That's what you do when you have kids, okay? Uh, but here's the deal, as you think about that song, and as, even as you think about your own reality, as you respond to conflict, we kind of jumped into this last week, but how do you guys instinctively respond when conflict arises in relationships? Maybe it's your family, maybe it's someone you're dating, maybe it's your roommates who they, God bless them, but they will not clean the dishes, right? Uh, I don't know what the conflict is, but how do you respond in those moments? I think every single one of us has a little bit of Elsa in us in which we just respond and we react and then we just take off. There's all kinds of different responses to conflict. And what I want to do this morning is show you four basic pitfalls to communicating in conflict that I want you to avoid. That if you can avoid these, then we actually have a chance to look at four behaviors that you need to embrace. It's going to be exceedingly practical. And again, Solomon and his wife are going to show us a magnificent example as to how to have good conflict, how to fight well in conflict, and then how to resolve it well. So that a relationship ends up better off than it ever was even prior to the conflict. That's where we're headed. That's where we want to see relationships go because conflict is inevitable. So how do you gain the momentum? How do you take advantage of what conflict can do so that a relationship moves forward and not backwards? These four pitfalls are going to be absolutely critical. And as we jump into them, let me remind you as to the conflict that broke out for this sweet, precious little couple in chapter 5, verse 2. As soon as their honeymoon is over, they're back home. And apparently uh, Solomon's wife is having a dream. And when she says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake, a voice, my beloved, was knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew and my locks with the damp of the night. We said last week that this is not just him literally knocking at a door and trying to get inside the room. But this is a figurative, even as she's dreaming, this is a figurative request that he's making to connect sexually with his wife. And notice her response to him in verse 3, in which she says, I've taken off my dress, how can I put it on again? (laughs) She's ready for bed, she's already in bed, and so to have to get up to let him in is inconvenient for her. To add to her inconvenient excuses, notice what she says in the second half of three. She says, I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? She chooses, in, she chooses convenience and personal prerogative over her husband. We said last week, though, that no conflict occurs in isolation or in a vacuum. So I'm sure there's some things that he did as well that probably made her not necessarily feel in the mood. So sex creates an incredible celebration in chapter 5, verse 1. And just one verse later, because it can happen that fast, sex will lead to conflict. It was happening, it led to celebration in 1. It's not happening now, and it's leading to conflict in verses 2 and 3. And what we did last week, and what we're going to do this week, is less about sex and just more about conflict and how you respond to it. How do you communicate in conflict in a way to actually move it forward and not move the relationship backwards? The first pitfall that you can avoid, the first pitfall we're going to see Solomon and his wife avoid is the pitfall of fleeing. 
Some of you guys, the first time, sign of conflict, it breaks out and your first instinct is to bolt and run for the hills. You are out of there. This is Elsa. She literally freezes everyone out. She runs for the hills. She's going to be a queen in a kingdom of her own isolation. This is Elsa. Put it another way, it's the kid who takes his toys and just goes home and doesn't want to play with anyone else when he can't have his little toy. We get much more adult at hiding, fleeing, but every single one of us has this in us. Some of us really predominantly major here that when conflict erupts, we back away and we run for the hills and we move away from the person that we're having conflict with. But notice exactly what Solomon does in verse four. The moment that they have a disagreement, notice what Solomon does. Does he move away from his wife or does he move towards her? Notice verse four. Uh, The woman speaking says, my beloved Solomon extended his hand through the opening. He moved towards her. Not he didn't run away. Verse five, notice the wife. Notice what she'll eventually do in the middle of this conflict. I arose to open to my beloved. She ends up moving back towards her husband. Verse six, I open to my beloved. She opens the door. She responds, but she responds with a delay. And in that delay, he's moved away from her. Verse six uh, tells us uh, that I opened the door, but my beloved had turned away and he had gone. We're going to see in chapter six that she actually does know where he's gone. So it's not like he's run off to some bar or run off to some other girl. That's not exactly at all what's happened here. What Solomon has done is in the middle of this moment, he's given her some space. He's allowed her to process. He's not smothered her, but he did not run away. He did not flee. The first real pitfall I want you guys to avoid is this pitfall of running from conflict. Uh, Let me give you guys one basic charge, and it's this, that for those of you who major here, when conflict breaks out, resist the desire to run away. Resist the desire to run away. Some of you, this isn't your thing. For some of you, it is. The conflict is so uncomfortable. It is so painful. Uh, You had such scars from it, maybe growing up, that the moment you see it, you just run for the heels. And what ends up happening is that that relationship suffers at even greater cost than just the conflict itself because now there's no chance to resolve it. There's no chance to move from superficiality to a deepness and a sense of commitment because you've just run and you've not addressed anything at all. Uh, Let me uh, dial it a little tighter on you guys and say this. It's not just that some of us have a tendency to run, but some of us communicate in ways that we don't actually realize are passive and are all about those that are running and yet speaking as they run. For some of you guys, as you deal with conflict, some of you guys deal with it by text, by email, and I ran across this whole new app, Yik Yak, this week. Some of you guys may know about it. But some of you guys communicate in ways that you think that you're not running, but by communicating in frustration or in emotion by text or by email are mediums that were never designed to handle communication and conflict. They're all about transfer of information, but they never show you the nature of emotion. They never allow really for conflict to actually be resolved. In fact, frankly, it often ramps it up all the more because it's like Dirk Nowitzki on his one-legged fadeaway. It's words on the move backwards, all right? Dirk does it well. Texting is not a great way of doing it. So here's the deal. So as you find yourselves in those moments where you're frustrated, don't result to text. Don't result to email. Do not hit send. Put it in your drafts. Call the person and say, hey, I'd love to chat. Move towards the person and communicate in person. Email and text are never great ways for you to sort through that kind of stuff in conflict. For some of you guys, you're not those that flee. You stick around. But when you stick around, you stick around for a different set of reasons. For some of us, and this is us guys, we're fixers. 
Now, uh, we kind of addressed this a little bit as we walked through uh, this fall already. I saw a few girls already smiling. <laughs> You're like, yeah, you guys are fixers. Uh, so for us guys, especially when a conflict breaks up, our first instinct is to not think about the emotion, but we think about the uh, solution to the problem that caused the conflict. Uh, I know of a guy at one point, or I heard the story told at one point of someone who was having a conflict with his wife, and he put his finger on his wife's lips and said, shh, <laughs> never a good move. And then followed that with, honey, no fighting, just loving. All right. Now, it was a completely ridiculous move, and it actually, in that moment, actually broke the tension and created laughter that actually allowed them to handle it well. But it was a very, very risky maneuver. Why? Because it says to the woman, I don't really care about the emotions whatsoever, right? This is just simple. This is nothing. I was with some friends last night and we were talking about conflict and someone said, really, and I thought it was ingenious, that really whenever you are the other party who's not necessarily emotional or offended and you say, this is silly, it doesn't matter. That's actually not true at all because it matters to someone, but it just doesn't matter to you. And so for some of us, as we fall into this pitfall, what we need to do and what we need to realize is this, you need to validate feelings first, listen and feel, and then you get on to solutions and you talk about those next. If you guys remember uh, that video, it's not about the nail. Great classic example of husbands and wives, men and women trying to deal with this issue, men moving past feelings and straight to solutions. This is a huge pitfall for some of us because the person feels condescended to as if they couldn't come up with a solution to the problem. They just want to feel heard and feel known and feel understood. So don't fly past the feelings. Don't invalidate the feelings. Don't diminish them with your solution too fast. Here's the third one. Uh, For some of us, uh, and we can do this whether we flee or whether we want to fix things. For some of us, we, in the midst of conflict, fume. We get hot and we just sit there and we stew on it and we marinate in our frustration and our anger. And it is deadly. It is deadly as you communicate in conflict. I ran across a story this week, uh, an article actually from the Business Insider, And it was a secular article, uh, and uh, the researcher, a man named John Gottman, had done 40 years of marital research looking at marriage and couples and the way that they communicate and what ends up happening down the road later on. And it's fascinating, as he did 40 years of research looking at thousands of couples, he ended up categorizing two different kinds of couples. There were those that were masters and those that were disasters, okay? Okay. Here's the, difference, here's the different differentiation of them. Masters, he would study their communication trends and he would come back to them six years later and he would note whether they were still happily married or not. Those that were masters were still not only married, but they were happily still married. Those that were disasters, he would come back to six years later looking at the state of their marriage and they would be of one of two different kinds of situations. Either they were still married, but were as unhappy as you could be, or they were no longer married at all. And so in the research, the great interesting thing was this. What would separate the masters from the disasters? What would separate those that would have the ability to resolve conflict and remain in harmony with one another versus those that would just end up having contempt and hatred for one another? What was the difference? And here's what he said in his article, and it's fascinating. I'm going to have it up here on the screen for you guys. He says this. There's a habit of mind that the masters have. They are scanning social environment for things they can appreciate and say thank you for. They are building a culture of respect and appreciation very purposefully. Disasters, though, are scanning for their partners and mistakes. Uh, If you marry someone who's going to have that disaster mentality, you're going to marry someone who is a nag and who's negative. 
who that's what they focus on, that's what they zero in on. And as you move into conflict, the tendency and the pitfall you could have is in the middle of conflict that you just get so zeroed in on what is frustrating you about the other person and you lose perspective on all the positive things you have about that spouse or about a roommate or about a family member. That in conflict, you get zeroed in on the negative. And what I want you guys to see is what happens to this couple uh, this couple is going to have some physical distance from one another. We saw last week that the woman, uh, the bride, is going to end up running out to search for her husband. And as she runs out, she runs into the city watchman. But I want you guys to notice when she runs into her girlfriends in verse 9, notice the interaction and notice how different it is. Verse 9, they say, they ask of her, what kind of beloved or what kind of man is your husband? Oh, most beautiful among women. You are absolutely stunning. How and what kind of man would it have conflict with you? Right? What kind of opportunity does she have here? This is the moment she could pull back with her girls and be like, that dude is just a horn dog. All he wants is sex, right? He's absolutely superficial. He's selfish, right? That's what she could have done. And sometimes for some of us, as we get into conflict, we get with our friends, those who are on the outside, and we just vent and we spew. And we end up zeroing in on what is negative and what is frustrating us. But notice what she does. In the middle of this conflict, notice her instantaneous response, verse 10. Notice what she says to her girlfriends. My beloved, my husband is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. There is none like him. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and they're black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk. That's kind of weird to me, but okay. And reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet scented herbs. And she goes on and on and on all the way through verse 16. These women ask her, what kind of husband would land you in conflict? And she says, this is my husband. This is the man I'm in conflict with. And she is effusive in her appreciation and her praise. When you and I have a tendency to fall in the pitfall of fuming, we get zeroed in on what is the source of our frustration and we stew and we marinate in it. And in those relationships that we find ourselves in that place, that fuming is deadly. And it's not just deadly to the relationship, but actually what's surprising is it's deadly to us. One of my favorite quotes uh, comes from a writer who says this about fuming. This is what he says. It's fascinating. Um, he says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick over wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back in many ways, is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. And the skeleton at the feast is you. It's amazing that we can find ourselves in conflict that can feel to us clearly like it's someone else's fault. And maybe sometimes it clearly is someone else's fault. And our response is, sometimes we flee, Sometimes we respond, we want to fix someone. And the other response is sometimes we just sit there and we sulk and we marinate and we play over in our minds what we're going to say when we have the opportunity. And what we're doing is we're just stewing in anger. And the result is it's not just caustic to the relationship that we find a brokenness in, but it's caustic to our very selves. And in marriage, this issue right here is literally 
cannibalism. Not only are you consuming yourself, but you are consuming the very marriage that you are a part of, that you are one flesh with this person. And the same is true with your roommates, the same is true with your family. That when we land ourselves in this pitfall, it's not just consuming and destroying us, but it's destroying the relationships we find ourselves in. It's not fruitful. It's not effective at all. And so for some of us, that fume, a fuse is lit. And the question is, as it kindles and as it burns, at some point it moves past that. And so for you who fume, let me say this. When you find yourselves in conflict, emphasize what you appreciate about the person. What's staring you in the face is what frustrates you about the person. But slow down and take some time and allow the Spirit of God to remind you what you love about the person. Balance it out. In fact, overwhelm the negativity with positivity of what you appreciate because in marriage, it's those kinds of people that end up not in contempt with one another, but remind, uh, that find themselves deeper and deeper in love with one another because they don't nag and they don't get stuck in the negativity of their spouse, but they get moved on continuing to appreciate what they love while dealing with conflict, but dealing with it with perspective. For us who fume, that fuse gets lit, and at some point it's going to explode. And when it explodes, what you have is a fourth pitfall, and that's a fight. A a fight, you can fight well, and you can fight dirty. Uh, What I mean here by fight is this. It's the tendency to take retaliation. Uh, To flee is to avoid and withdraw. Uh, To fix is to propose solutions before feelings. To fume is to inwardly just sulk and meditate and and, uh, stew and marinate in that anger. But to fight is to take vengeance and to retaliate. Uh, I had an opportunity, some of you guys might have run into uh, it, kind of stern to me this week. Uh, Jimmy uh, Kimmel every year does a deal where uh, at Halloween, uh, parents end up lying to their kids that they ate all of their kids' candy. It's absolutely hilarious. And you see some kids just go off the handle. I mean, they just totally go off the handle. It's not like a long fuse. It's a short fuse. And they just go and they want to just destroy their parents, okay? Uh, There was one kid who literally just goes ape crazy and ends up just throwing and destroying everything in the kitchen. It was absolutely hilarious. Some of that is you, though. Some of you are this kind of person. You fight, and when you fight, you fight hot. A fuse is lit, and you explode, And your approach to conflict is kind of a scorched earth approach. Like you're going to destroy everything in your path. (laughs) And what you got to realize in the midst of that passion, in the midst of that fire is uncontained. It is a forest fire that destroys everything in its pathway. Compared to a fireplace, it is a contained fire that is beautiful. For some of you, you have a tendency to react. And so my challenge of you guys would be this, to think long and to speak slow. If this is you, if this is the pitfall you find yourself in, you need to slow down. You need to think longer and you need to speak slower because the moment that you erupt and you put someone on a tee and you swing a golf club right at them (laughs) in that explosion moment, the relationship may forever be changed. That words are really powerful and frankly, sometimes they're really dangerous. Be careful how you speak. So here's my question, four pitfalls for you. Which one is yours? Which one do you have a tendency to fall into? Mine is fixer. I'm a fixer. I'm an engineer by trade, so conflict are up, so I, I kind of get into immediately problem-solving mode. My wife could tell you. What is yours, though? What is your tendency? What is your pitfall that you fall into? And why do you fall into it? My challenge for you this week would be to think through conflicts in the last few weeks, to think through conflicts even with your family, and to slow down enough and to reflect and go, which one is me? Where do I fall? 
Where do I have a tendency to drift towards and then why do I do that? Why do I drift there? What's going on in my heart? What's going on in my mind, either about what I believe about the person or I believe even about the Lord that causes me to move that direction? Because until you've rooted these pitfalls out, you and I have no chance to really manifest the next four behaviors I want to show you really quickly. Then unless we can root these pitfalls out that for some of us are so instinctual and so ingrained, possibly from our family of origin, the family that we grew up in, that we saw conflict modeled, some of us have adopted that or we've swung to the other pendulum and moved the incomplete opposite direction from those pitfalls to another set of pitfalls. What is yours? I didn't mention this last week, but I think it's fair to mention for some of us as we get into conflict, there's a lot of deep stuff and frankly family baggage going on sometimes. And so it really might be appropriate for some of us to actually stop and actually sit down at some point in time with a professional counselor that can help us unpack what's going on in our uh, heart and our mind as we respond in relational contexts in which we continue to find ourselves in these pitfalls. To see a counselor does not mean that you are jacked up or that something is seriously off. A counselor is simply just another third party who can help you from the outside process and reflect on some of these tendencies that we all have. And then it can help us begin to think through how do we respond differently. Four pitfalls. Here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of close with four behaviors to embrace. Four behaviors to embrace. This is where we started or where we ended last week with the behavior of confession. That we ended here last week saying that conflict was inevitable. And so conflict shows that there's still sin in our relationships. We still have sin. And so the necessary response as we start out in conflict is confession. This is a great place to begin because when you begin in confession, you realize, holy snikes, I'm not perfect. (laughs) That I actually might have had a reason or a cause that created the mess that I find myself in, even though I think it's the other person's fault. Confession slows me down and helps me realize, no, no, maybe I do have fault in this conflict as well. Maybe I have a hand in it. Maybe I've had an impact in the very environment where someone else has responded because of ways that I've been responding to them for years. Confession slows us down. And confession reminds us too that we have a Savior who responded to us in conflict in a way that we so often don't. We who aren't sinless have a hard time forgiving others. And yet he who was sinless did forgive us and gave his only son for us. And if Jesus Christ gave his only life on a cross so that we could be reconciled to him and that he would forgive us though he was sinless, then why do we who are sinful seem unwilling to forgive others who are also sinful? See, confession reminds us of exactly what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf so that we begin to respond differently in conflict and move towards the second behavior that I think is so huge in conflict, and that's forgiveness. Not just confession, but forgiveness. And what does it mean to forgive Forgiveness simply means that you let go of the right to punish and take vengeance upon the other person for their sin. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12, an incredible passage. He says this, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That to forgive means that you and I recognize that God is judge and jury and that it is not our place to be judge and jury over someone else in the midst of a relationship. It's not our job to react to a spouse or toward a roommate, but it is our job to release punishment and say, Lord, I know that you will deal with this. It's not my place to deal with it. To not take vengeance, to not retaliate, but to move in the complete opposite direction, which is to let vengeance be the Lord's whose it is and not yours. To forgive to let go of that need 
to take a pound of flesh and to retaliate. One of the things I love about this passage as well is not just this idea of vengeance, but also this statement in here that says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I'm going to walk you through four behaviors this morning that you need to embrace as you communicate in conflict. And you can walk through all four and you may not have peace in a relationship. That walking through all four is not a formula that guarantees you peace in a relationship, but it is a formula that allows you to finish off your side of the conflict. Trusting, allowing the person to move towards you or move away from you, but you cannot control the other party. Nor do you have to be a victim to the other party. That so long as it depends on you, if we embrace these four behaviors, then peace is possible, but it takes another party, it takes another person to tango with us and to move towards us. So know that as you find yourselves in relationships that never seem to heal or they never seem to reconcile, it's not necessarily that you are doing something wrong. But your job is to move forward as far as you can in the midst of these four behaviors that I want to give you. And the first is confession. The second is forgiveness. And the third is communication. That you would communicate. uh, That you wouldn't conceal, not feel. Is that not more dysfunctional than anything I can think about? That you would not run off to a kingdom of isolation, but that you would move towards the person, having confessed your own sin, having forgiven them and let them off the hook for any vengeance that you think they are due, and then that you communicate to them in the face, in person, on the issues. Fourthly and lastly, this is where we'll wrap up, uh, that you would reconcile. To reconcile is not just to let go of punishment, but to reconcile means that you restore that relationship back to where it was before fascinating. Here's where I want to end with you guys. In chapter 6, I want you guys to notice this couple and where they wrap up. Chapter 6, verse 10, it says, uh, Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? In chapter 6, verse 4, the couple began to move back towards each other and began to communicate. And that communication culminates here as uh, they go on in verse uh, 11. I went down to the orchid of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley and to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. This is not just some little trip to the Arboretum. Uh, This is not some trip to the Botanical Gardens. Uh, This is not the Moody Gardens. This is an agricultural way of saying they have makeup sex. All right, they are are back together, okay? Uh, And then so much so, notice what happens in verse 12. Before I was aware, my soul set me, or my beloved, my husband set me over the chariots of my noble people. A picture that goes all the way back to the very end of chapter three of their wedding ceremony when she was put on a chariot and paraded toward a wedding. Verse 13, come back. Others will say, seeing her on the chariot moving forward, others will say to her, come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. Why should you gaze at this Shulamite, Solomon says, as at the dance of the two companies? What's he saying here? He's saying in the middle of their reconciliation of the relationship, he treats her like she is a bride on a wedding day. He mounts her on his chariot. He parades her through and there's celebration like very much like what was happening at their wedding reception. And so people are just staring at a bride and a groom who are having their first dance. They are looking at this couple at the end of chapter six who had had conflict and they seem like newlyweds, just like newlyweds. And what's the point? The point is they've resolved this conflict and they've brought it back to the original place before they had the conflict. It's as good as new. For some of you, you are in relationships where uh, reconciliation is the goal. Uh, to return it back to what it was before and even better. But for some of us, whether there's abuse or there's serious things, that may not be possible and that may not be good. 
So know that that's not always what we're shooting for. That's what we're always hoping for. But in some cases, that's not possible. But that's the trajectory. That's what we're hoping for. You guys movie, uh, remember the whole trajectory of the movie Frozen? It starts out with Anna and Elsa in utter uh, childhood bliss. Then uh, Elsa, gets, or Elsa hits Anna with a uh, freeze bolt in the head or whatever. But then really their whole childhood really is a buried secret that is not addressed that fractures their relationship until finally that fuming fracture explodes. Elsa retreats. And we're going to have an act of true love that will bring that relationship back and it will be brought back. It will be not just forgiven, but reconciled. And what ends that movie is a picture of a relationship that was even better than anything they had in the best of times. And that's what we're looking for. But that is so incredibly hard. Conflict happens. Conflict hurts. But conflict can help if we can avoid these four pitfalls and we can embrace these four behaviors so that what we end up with in our relationships in which conflict is inevitable because we're still sinful, is a restoration and a picture of the gospel and a restoration of relationships to something even better than before. And the world looks on at that and it sees something it sees nowhere else in life. That's the beauty of the gospel. That what is given is what is not deserved. That forgiveness and mercy are by grace. That reconciliation is never what is due But thankfully, God has never treated us that way and he calls us to treat our relationships in that same fashion, to be extenders of mercy, extenders of grace, dealing with conflict in a way that the world sees so differently and is drawn in and attracted by. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this couple's model. I thank you for their example, uh, that they avoid certain pitfalls that so many of us fall into. And their relationship will find a place of restoration that was better than anything before. And so, Father, I pray for so many of us as we think about of our relationships, not necessarily a marriage just yet, but maybe for some of us as we think about relationships with parents, as we think about relationships with siblings, as we think about relationships with roommates or friendships or high school friend that uh, there was an issue and we went south and we never reconciled ever again. Lord, I don't know where we find ourselves this morning in the relationships that you've put us in, but I pray that you'd give us fresh eyes to see how to handle conflict differently. Maybe it's a phone call to someone today in which we need to go and we need to apologize for a pitfall that we had fallen in. And because of that, that relationship has been fractured to this point forward. For some of us, we need to begin to learn exactly the model of Jesus Christ and begin to find an empowerment to respond differently than we've ever seen it before. If a sinless Savior could call us to forgiveness and grace, then surely he could empower us towards that. Allow us to see and to taste something that maybe we've never seen before. Thankfully, by the gospel, we have seen it and what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us and what he's enabled in us. And I pray that we would be a community, that we would be individuals that would step into conflict and respond wholly different after today. That you give us eyes and an openness to be convicted and challenged by the pitfalls we fall into and that you would call us forward to embrace a new set of behaviors, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation. Lord, allow us to be tangibly and pointedly different. Lord, we love you. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, the rest of the morning is for you guys in your tables as you guys talk through these four pitfalls and these four behaviors. I hope you guys have great discussion time.